0: Welcome to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you all on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. We will be continuing in our teaching series in Job called Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday we focused on part one of Eliphaz's first speech in Job chapter 4. I gave you three R's. We looked at Eliphaz's rebuke, Eliphaz's reasoning, and Eliphaz's revelation. In the next section, we will focus on part two of Eliphaz's first speech. I'm going to give you another three R's. Uh, Today, we will look at more of Eliphaz's reasoning and Eliphaz's recommendation. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at Eliphaz's reminder. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 5. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 16. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and we ask that You help us as we worship You through Your Word and through the ministry of Your Word, through the preaching of Your Word. We pray that You sanctify and train us through Your Word today, Lord. May we learn everything that we need to learn and know in the Scripture today. May we learn uh, not only these truths, but may we learn to obey these truths and bring you much glory as we live our lives for you. Uh, We lift up this entire time to you. We submit ourselves to you when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Let's begin with the fourth R, the fourth R. Eliphaz's reasoning continued. This is just more of his reasoning. Uh, We're looking at this in verses 1 through 7. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Eliphaz says this next to Job. He says, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Now, after blaming the loss of Job's children on Job's alleged sin, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and sharing a supernatural vision he apparently received, chapter 4, verses 12 through 21, uh, that Eliphaz hoped uh, would somehow establish his authority over Job, Eliphaz now exhorts Job to call out for help while simultaneously promising that no one is going to answer. (laughs) Eliphaz reasoned that, that Job had brought all this calamity on himself through his own personal sin and that no one would help him, not even the holy ones, which is a reference to angels, because this is how a moral universe works. If you sin, it's on you. No one's going to come to your aid. You're going to have to deal with it. This is his theology and worldview. Um, If a person sins, he or she should expect no help from anyone, no help from above. But what they should expect is just more calamity and more suffering. In Eliphaz's worldview, God rewards those who do good and He punishes those who do evil. And those who... Uh, in Eliphaz's mind, that remain in sin, they're going to receive nothing but more trouble, more suffering, more loss, more punishment, and these sorts of things. And this is his perspective of Job here. Imagine being told, uh, being blamed for being in sin, and that's why you have all these troubles, and you know you don't have sin like Job did. But imagine being told that the reason why you're going through all these things is because of personal sin. And then your friend tells you, I'd like to see you just call out to see if anyone's actually going to help you in your situation. Uh, This is essentially what Eliphaz is doing. Job's alleged refusal to do good, which would be repent of ongoing sin, was therefore resulting in no help from heaven. It was as if Eliphaz was saying, Job, you've sinned and now you've got no one to turn to no one to deliver you from your terrible mess. In fact, the terrible mess that you created for yourself. Eliphaz reminds me of those graceless preachers who preach only the law of God and leave out the gospel. There's a great many of them in churches today. This is what makes Eliphaz and all graceless preachers so incredibly dangerous. They preach only part of the truth. They're Preaching produces either Pharisees or defeatists. Pharisees love the law and think they can obey enough of it to earn personal righteousness and secure for themselves a place in heaven. Defeatists, however, seek to obey the law but fail at one point or another and then they lose heart and they eventually give up. Leaving the law out of our preaching, preaching actually cheapens the gospel. But leaving the gospel out of our preaching is a death sentence. We must preach both law and gospel. The law establishes our need for the gospel, and the gospel is our only remedy for our transgressions and lawlessness. If we preach one without the other, we become a dangerous, half-truth preacher like Eliphaz. Now we can move to verse 2. He says this to Job, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. Eliphaz reasons that that Job is being a fool and the telltale sign of his foolishness was his vexation. The Hebrew word for vexation is kos, which means to be irritated. Job displayed much vexation, much irritation in his initial response in chapter 3 when he cursed the day he was born, wished that he had died at birth, and longed for death. His loud sighing and groaning, chapter 3, verse 24, also displayed his vexation, his irritation. Now the ultimate definition of a fool is one who denies the existence of God, Psalm 14, verse 1. According to Eliphaz, Job was acting like a godless man, like an atheist, Eliphaz warns Job that that vexation kills foolish people. The fool can, in a sense, drown in his own tears or die of a broken heart. He can make emotionally driven, irrational decisions that put him at risk. This is what Eliphaz is telling Job. You know, your your irritation and your vexation and your, your moaning and your groaning, it proves that you are being a fool And fools die eventually from their foolishness. And so what he's telling Job is you've got to repent of this vexation. You've got to repent of this foolishness. Eliphaz also warns Job about jealousy. A better rendering of the Hebrew word kinah would be envy. Job's complaining sounded like jealousy. It sounded like envy to Eliphaz. Like Job envied his past life. Over his current life, or Job envied the idea of dying and ending his suffering rather than going on and living with the suffering. Eliphaz warns him, Don't be a simpleton, Job. Envy will slay you. Now he was wrong about Job, but he was right about envy. Envy will slay us if we allow it to take root in our lives. Proverbs 14:30 says, "A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot." Verses three through five. Continuing, Eliphaz says, "I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of the thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. Eliphaz literally tells Job he has witnessed the fool taking root. The fool he saw take root here was was none other than Job himself. Job displayed constant wisdom and, and godliness to his friends through the years, but now he was displaying foolishness according to Eliphaz. And Eliphaz uses a farming metaphor to describe Job's transformation. Foolishness had had sprouted and began to take root in Job's life like a germinated seed sprouts and begins to take root beneath the soil. Now, the second part of verse 3 is worded rather strangely in the ESV and other translations. The NIV provides a a much better rendering in my opinion. Uh, It reads like this. It says, but suddenly his house was cursed. According to Eliphaz, the ultimate sign of Job's foolishness was not his vexation, not his irritation, but the fact that his house had been cursed. Example of his house being cursed, his children had been crushed in the gate, the hungry had eaten his harvest and the thirsty panted after his wealth. We've got to examine these poetic phrases in more detail here. Let's look at the first one. His children are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. This is an allusion to the great wind that destroyed Job's oldest home and killed all of his children, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It was also a a meritless indictment. Eliphaz was charging Job as a responsible party for the death of his own children. He did this back in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 as well. Uh, Next phrase, the hungry eat his harvest and he takes it even out of the thorns. This is an allusion to the Sabians who stole Job's farm animals and produce, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. In antiquity, farmers like Job stored their produce among briars to prevent theft. Now, most animals and thieves will not venture into the thorns for a head of lettuce, bushel of carrots, or some tomatoes. And, and, and Eliphaz understands this, and he understands how Job farmed and where he stored his goods. And in poetry, he even talks about how these Sabians went into the secret place where Job had his stuff hidden, into the briars, and they stole those things, the, the fruits and the vegetables or whatever it is that he was farming. All of that produce was stolen from him that way. Next phrase, the thirsty pant after his wealth. This is an obvious allusion to the ever-thirsty never satisfied, never satiated Chaldeans who lapped up the rest of Job's wealth when they stole his camels. Chapter 1, verse 17. According to Eliphaz, these losses were signs of God's punishment against Job's sin and wickedness or foolishness or lack of repentance. Now, we know this isn't true because in chapters 1 and 2, we are told that Job was blameless, he was upright, he was innocent, and that Satan had killed his children. Satan had stirred up the Sabians. Satan had stirred up the Chaldeans against him. This was not God's judgment and punishment against Job, it was the work of Satan. In Eliphaz's theology and worldview, God can and will punish our sin by killing our children and or loved ones. Now, the question we have here is that, and because this is what Eliphaz believes, he believes that God punished Job and killed his children as a punishment. The question about Eliphaz's theology and what he said here is, is this accurate? Is this true? Is it it true that our our personal sin uh, can cause God to punish us by killing our children? Now, Now, we do know that it is true that our personal sin can have profoundly negative effects on others. Uh, even leading to the illnesses of others and death of others. We know that. Our personal sin has a, can have a catastrophic effect on others. But we need to understand that there's a difference between our sin having an effect on others and God punishing us by killing others. That is not something that God does. He's not in the business of, of punishing us by killing others. Now, some would disagree based on 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. David's sin had caused the enemies of the Lord to lose respect for the Lord. And for this reason, the baby David had with another man's wife, Bathsheba, would die. Now, the death of this little baby seems like a punishment against David, but it wasn't. It was an act of mercy. God would not allow this child to to grow up in David's scandalous, divided home, right? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. If you look back in that section, you'll see that God pronounced certain curses on the house of David and some utterly atrocious, terrible things would happen to that house because of David's sin. And so what does God do with this little baby? God acts in mercy and takes this little baby to be with himself so that that baby will not experience all of the things that are gonna befall David's house, which even included later on, after David, a divided kingdom. So this was not God punishing David by killing the baby. God did punish David, but the death of the baby was an act of mercy to spare the baby from coming up under David's dysfunctional home. Or maybe critics of what I'm saying here would go to Exodus 34, verse 7, which says, "...God keeps steadfast love for thousands." forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations." Now this text does not teach that God punishes future generations for the sins of past generations. It teaches that God is loving and that He forgives sin provided that sinners do what is necessary to receive His forgiveness. That would be repent and believe. Now if sinners refuse to repent and believe, they are guilty and God will not forgive their iniquity no matter how many generations come and go. If the next generation is obstinate and wicked and sinful like the previous generation, it won't repent. It too will pay the price for its sin and so on and so forth. So this this text doesn't have to do with punishing the next generation for the sins of the past generation. It has to do with if the cycle of unrepentance is not broken, the guilt will remain throughout all the generations. And God will continue to punish one generation after another if that generation refuses to repent like the previous generation. That's the meaning of the text. Now listen to these passages. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Look, God does not punish us by putting our children or others to death. He holds each person accountable for their own sin, and He shall punish each person for their own sin if they are not in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. John chapter 8, verse 24. It is not right for us to assume or for anyone to assume that a child or loved one has been put to death by God because of his or her parents' sins. It is not right to think that way. And Eliphaz made this mistake. This was part of his theology. He believed, without a doubt, that Job was in sin, and because of that, God punished Job by killing his children. Eliphaz was wrong to assume this. We are wrong if we assume something like this. And I would just encourage all of us not to follow his poor example. We need to stick to basic gospel truths and not be presumptive about why this has happened or that happened. We know that sin is in the world and sin causes death and is destroying things, but we don't need to play the game that Eliphaz is playing here. We need to stick to basic gospel truths, like Romans 6.23, which is one of my favorite verses. For the wages of sin is death. We get this. We understand this, but that's not the full verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we need to preach. Verses 6 and 7. Eliphaz continues by saying, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Eliphaz tells Job that his affliction and trouble is, is not the result of the land or of some so-called natural cause. It is the result of sinful man who was born to create trouble. The Hebrew word for man is Adam, and it literally points to the first man, right? The first man ever created, our federal head, Adam. Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. Adam brought sin and death into the world through a single act of of disobedience, Genesis chapter 3. And his progeny, all men and women are sinners because of Him and because of choice, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now the Hebrew word for sparks is ban Reshef or bain resheph, which literally means sons of resheph or sons of burning coals. In antiquity, resheph was believed to be the, the god of plague and pestilence. His dwelling place was believed to be below the ground in the underworld and and the ancients believed he sent trouble upwards like flying sparks. The the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, they all worshipped a false deity called Resheph. Now the idea here is that Adam's progeny, fallen mankind, is like Resheph, the god of plague and pestilence. Our sin perpetuates Affliction and trouble like sparks defy gravity and fly upward. Now Eliphaz was asserting that Job's sin had caused his affliction and trouble. And Job was simply reaping the consequences for what he had sown in the dust, for what he had sown in the ground, all of his iniquity. And now we can move to the fifth R. The fifth R. And this is Eliphaz's recommendation. We see this in verses 8 through 16. We pick it up at verse 8. Here's what he says. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. So after verbally and and poetically pulverizing Job, Eliphaz suddenly changes direction and recommends that the battered patriarch seek God and commit his cause to God. This recommendation sounds a lot like Psalm 37, verse 5, which says, Commit your way to the Lord and trust Him, and He will act. Now, in my opinion, this should have been Eliphaz's starting point. He should have began his speech and his encouragement to Job, his his, um, mercy and, and, and just support of Job. He should have began it with this recommendation rather than with blame. Our first words in counseling scenarios with other believers should be, have you sought God? Have you committed your cause to God? Have you asked God for answers? Have you asked God for wisdom? Have you asked God for help or direction? And then the next thing we should do is point them to Scripture, to the Bible, because it is the Word of God. It is where we hear His voice. It is where we find what we need. It was Eliphaz's recommendation here that first planted the seed in Job's mind that he should present his case before God. And this is precisely what Job did throughout the rest of this book, especially in chapter 10. Now, the next eight verses stress three features of God's governance of the universe, His sovereign control over the weather and fortunes of humankind, His apprehension and punishment of wrongdoers, and His deliverance of the needy and oppressed. Let's look at verse 9. Eliphaz says this, speaking of God whom Job should take his cause to or plead his cause to. He says, God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Here, Eliphaz gives Job a reason to seek God, a reason to take his cause to God, a rationale. It was as if if he had said, here is what you must... uh, Here is why, Job, you must seek God and commit your cause to God. He does great, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Now in the remaining verses, Eliphaz gives four examples of the great, unsearchable, marvelous things that God does. Verse 10, he he gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. The giving of rain and, and water on the fields or farmlands demonstrates God's sovereignty over the weather. God's sovereignty over the weather is a popular theme in the book of Job. Uh, Job chapter 26, verses 8 and 9 it says, God binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over. It his cloud. So God is the one who creates these clouds and fills them with water so much so that you can't even see the moon. Uh, Job chapter 37, verse 6, for to the snow, God says, fall on earth, likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Uh, chapter 37, verse 10, by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. Chapter 37, verses 11 through 13. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. God's sovereignty over the weather is a popular theme, not only in Job, but throughout the rest of Scripture. Genesis chapter six verse seventeen: For behold, God will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Deuteronomy chapter eleven verses thirteen and fourteen: And if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And then, of course, we have Psalm 104, verse 13, which is what Bruce read earlier. It says, from your lofty abode, speaking of God's place of residence, heaven where His throne is, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Again, in Over in the New Testament now, Matthew 5, 45, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And I think in in the most awesome display of God's sovereignty over the weather, we look at Mark chapter 4, verses 37 to 39. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And the disciples woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And what happened? The wind ceased and there was great calm. As we can see, Scripture is replete with examples of God's sovereignty over the weather. There is no denying this reality. Once in a while, if you're driving around town, especially in the country areas, right on the outskirts of town, you will see little yard signs that say, pray for rain, especially west of Carpenter Road and that whole agricultural area over there. Now, the person who created these signs obviously understands how the weather works. They are basically asking us to pray to God who controls the weather to bring rain, to be merciful and bring rain. There's wisdom in these little signs. Now we can move to verse 11. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Grammatically, verse 11 is a continuation of verse 10. God uses the rains and waters the fields to set on high the lowly and to lift to safety those who mourn. In other words, He causes or uses the weather, especially rain, to make farmlands fruitful and lowly farmers prosperous. And He uses rain to destroy droughts, to lift those who are suffering under those droughts, to lift them to safety and to bring an end to their mourning. God uses or God's use of the rain and waters to bring about fruitfulness and prosperity demonstrates His sovereignty over the fortunes of humankind. He owns everything, the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, verse 10. And He distributes wealth according to His will and purposes. And He also expects His people to be good stewards with that which He has graciously given us to work for Him, and to be very, very generous with what He has given to us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Verses 12 through 14, Eliphaz continues, God frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. Now these statements are entirely true, but they are misapplied. God does sovereignly frustrate the devices of the crafty. He he does sovereignly catch the wise in their craftiness. He sovereignly brings to an end the schemes of the wily and He confounds them so badly they sometimes can't tell the difference between day and night. And something else He does here, He also sovereignly allows the crafty, worldly, wise, and wily to do their wicked bidding because He works all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, according to the counsel of His own will, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Now, here's the deal. Eliphaz was referring to Job here, and this is why these statements are misapplied. According to Eliphaz, Job is the crafty, worldly-wise, wily man whom God has frustrated, whom God has caught, whom God has brought to an end, whom God has confounded. And his terrible, terrible losses, the loss of his his wealth, the loss of his his health, the loss of his children, all of these losses proved Job's guilt and the presence of God's justice, according to Eliphaz. But like I've said before and before, uh, over and over, I should say Eliphaz was entirely wrong about Job. Job was neither crafty nor worldly wise nor wily. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was the opposite of everything that Eliphaz thought he was. But Eliphaz's theology and worldview had no category for righteous suffering, which made it impossible for him to see Job as anything other than guilty. Anything other than under the punishment of God. Verses 15 and 16. But God saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Now Eliphaz turns to the positive side of divine justice, the defense and deliverance of the needy and the oppressed. Verse 15 demonstrates God's sovereign protection of the righteous. When the mighty lay hold of the righteous and attempt to slash them with untruthful, slanderous, cutting words, God defends them. Nowhere, is this, nowhere in Scripture is this truth seen more clearly than in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where we see the accuser of the brethren, Satan, silenced and cast down by our advocate and great high priest, Christ himself 1 John 2:1 Hebrews 4:14 4, It is our advocate our great high priest who defends us against the allegations of the devil he lives to make intercession for us Hebrews 7:25 And since we have God as our just defender we have no need to avenge ourselves We can leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. Verse 16 tells us that those who've been mistreated by the crafty, um, we're talking about the poor in spirit here, the righteous, those righteous folks who have been mistreated by the mighty or by the crafty, they can have hope because God will shut the mouth of injustice. Hallelujah, right? Now these statements are entirely true. And I'm referring to verses 15 and 16. These these verses are entirely true, but I'm not exactly sure why Eliphaz made them to Job at this point. It could be because he saw Job not only as guilty and under the punishment of God, but as needy, as poor, as desperate or in desperate need of deliverance and hope. I hope that's why he said this to Job. We just don't know for sure. Closing. I'd like to slide back to verse 9 for a moment. Verse 9, it says, God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. This is my favorite verse in this chapter. Uh, This this could be a a Christian's life verse. I mean, if we're going to venture out on a limb and get a life verse. It sounds pretentious and fake, but maybe some of you have a life verse. I like Romans 6.23. If you're going to have a life verse, this is certainly a good one for that. And I I really like how Eliphaz described some of the great, unsearchable, marvelous things God does in verses 10 through 16. I really like that section. Uh, It paints such a, a beautiful picture of our beautiful God. It does. Let's just reflect again on what was said there. He and this this is my commentary of what Eliphaz was saying, but this is essentially what he was saying. God sovereignly controls the weather. God sovereignly controls wealth. Stop and think about that for a moment. You may think that you don't have enough, but you have exactly what God has given you, which He knows is enough. Think about that. God sovereignly controls all wealth. All wealth. He sovereignly frustrates the devices of the crafty. He sovereignly catches the wise in their own craftiness. He sovereignly brings to um, a quick end the schemes of the wily. He sovereignly confounds them all. And He sovereignly delivers the needy, the righteous, from the slanderous hands of the mighty. Now, there are a great many other great and marvelous things God does far too many to list here or elsewhere. Amen? I think we would all agree to that. The one that really stands out to me isn't described in this text. And this has baffled me and caused me to hit my head several times going, why? Why is it not here? And I'm not questioning the validity of God's Word. What I am questioning is Eliphaz's counsel to Job. What thing does God do that, that is so great and so marvelous and yet is not mentioned here, it would be salvation through the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my humble opinion, um, that, that's, that is the, the, the greatest and most marvelous thing that God does, that He saves sinners through Christ. And when when we talk about salvation, we're talking about election. We're talking about regeneration. We're talking about calling them to faith. We're talking about giving them the gifts of faith and repentance. We're talking about justification, adoption. We're talking about sanctification, glorification. When we talk about or think about salvation, we're thinking about God's entire plan for sinners like me. Everything that He's wrought in eternity past for me, that is salvation and that is in my opinion, the greatest and most marvelous thing God does. And the question I have is, why didn't Eliphaz describe or maybe um, at least mention God's power to forgive sin to Job? I mean, you're going to make a list of these wonderful things that God does, these great and marvelous things, and, and Eliphaz believes without a doubt that he's dealing with a man who is living in habitual sin, and that's why his life is destroyed. In that kind of counseling context, how do you leave out the forgiveness of God in Christ? And, and, and we know that Eliphaz had, if any at all understanding, it was very limited maybe of Jesus Christ. I, we don't know if he understood that a Savior was coming. I would think that he had some idea of that because he practiced the sacrificial system which points to the Lamb who would come. We, we get it. We don't want to criticize Eliphaz. He has a, uh, an underdeveloped theology. I mean, the Word of God was not available yet at this point, so he couldn't study it like we do. But in any case, he must understand that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. He, like Job, adhered to the sacrificial system, which is nothing less than an example of God's mercy. He's dealing with a man whom he believes is sin. When you talk about the great and marvelous things God does, how do you leave out the forgiveness of God? How do you leave that out? He believed that Job was in sin. He believed that, that He was under the punishment of God. How do you leave out the grace of God? How do you leave out salvation? Maybe he left out salvation because he already knew Job was saved. I have no doubt that Job was saved. But he could have talked about God's power and mercy to forgive. He could have talked about God's cleansing power and these sorts of things. He could have directed Job to make some sacrifices. If I'm counseling a person whom I believe is in sin... I'm going to point to God's wonderful grace. I'm going to point to the great and marvelous forgiveness. That's something that He does in and through Jesus Christ. We're going to point to that. We're not going to shy away from the person's sin. We're going to lovingly expose it, but we're going to point to the one who destroyed sin on the cross, who paid the price for sin on the cross, who overcame death through His resurrection. Again, this is Law and gospel. Eliphaz just, in a sense, gives law. But where is gospel? You need to know today. You need to know that if you are still in your sins, if you haven't repented and put your faith in Christ, you need to know that you are still in your sins. But you need to know that if you are still in your sins, God can save you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3, verse 8. That's repeated in Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He can save. He alone can save, and He does it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God can forgive your sins. God can cleanse you of your sins. God can Give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you can stand before Him uncondemned as an adopted son or daughter, as an heir of His kingdom. God can justify you. God can adopt you into His fold, into His family. God can sanctify you over time. He can make you like Jesus. And one day, God can glorify you. That's salvation. If you repent... Turn away from your self-sufficiency. Turn away from what you think are good works. Turn away from trying to earn your own way. Turn away from false religion. If you will turn away from that mode and those things and turn to Christ and trust in Him alone for your salvation, you will be saved. Acts 2.38, Acts 16.31. And if you are In Christ, because you have already repented. You you believe in Christ. You've been regenerated. You're a new person. You're walking in his ways. You're obeying him. You display the marks of a true Christian if you are in Christ. And you are burdened by sin. Because guess what, beloved? It happens. If you are burdened by sin, if you are burdened by some type of affliction, if you are burdened by persecution, take Eliphaz's recommendation and seek God and commit your cause to God. If we will confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. Brothers and sisters, go to God in prayer. Approach the throne of grace confidently and present your cause to Him. He will surely listen to you. He always listens to His children. And He will surely give you mercy and give you grace to help you in your time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Go to God in prayer. Go to God in prayer. If you're burdened, if you're afflicted, if you're being persecuted, if you're suffering, you have the right through the blood of Christ to go to the throne of grace. Go to the throne of grace. Go boldly and confidently and take with you your petition and bring it before your gracious Lord, before your gracious high priest, before your advocate. If it's a sin issue take it to Him and confess it. If it's an affliction issue or persecution, take it to Him. Take that cause to Him and lay it at the foot of the throne of grace. He will surely help you. The Scripture promises this.